Conversations on Changing the World, the podcast devoted to women's issues and creating change from a distinctly Midwest perspective. I'm Martha Kovach, sociologist, producer, and your host. Few things are as fundamental to our well-being as having a place to call home. A roof over one's head is one of the basics of life that's easy to take for granted. Easy until an illness, loss of job, or relationship turned bad threatens the security of home. A significant and growing percentage of the population is just one or two lost paychecks away from a housing catastrophe. For women with children, the problems associated with homelessness become more severe and more urgent. Today, I'm talking with Beth Fetzer-Rice, Executive Director of the Homeless Families Foundation, about housing, families, economic insecurity, and hope. Beth, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your taking the time, and we're really eager to hear about homelessness, and you really are on the front lines, both for trying to help people who are homeless, but also really to serve as an advocate. You're on the you're on the front lines all the way around. Yes, right, absolutely, Um, and it's where I like to be. Oh, good, good. You know, I'd like to start, if we could just lay some groundwork, what do you think are some of the major misconceptions that are out there about homelessness that you want the general population to be aware of? And also, we got to say that you would like policymakers to be aware of. It's a great question. And I think with homelessness, there are so many myths that we deal with. Homelessness is um, the end result of a lot of what I would consider failed systems or failed kind of um, pieces of society along the way for people. And um, there are quite a few myths. So I think the first would be that homeless uh, persons, um, one is to label someone as homeless as if that's their only characteristic. Okay. 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 Homelessness is, um, for most people, an episode um, that is time limited. And what we work to do is to make that brief and non-reoccurrent. And for most people, it is. There is a certain group that have some situations that they they might be homeless for longer periods of time or they fall into a chronic homeless uh, kind of category. But for the most part, it is someone, you know, it's it's a relatively short experience and definitely doesn't define a person completely, just as you wouldn't say someone is a schizophrenic. They are living with schizophrenia. So it's just one piece of who they are and what they're dealing with. And just as somebody, I don't know, maybe has cancer, Absolutely. Yeah, it does not want to be defined. Absolutely. So I would say that is one of the biggest myths. And then the other is that is that persons who are experiencing homelessness are very different 
from you and I or, or the majority of the public. And I, I'm, although a lot of persons who are homeless are living in, in pretty deep poverty, other than that, they, are, they have the same issues. They um, are struggling finding work. They have family issues the same as we do. And uh, a lot of folks are just a paycheck or two away or a very big what I would call a shock event from having some sort of bottom fallout for them too. So really, they're not all that different from from kind of the folks that we know. Can you give um, us an example of what you mean by a shock event? Well, it could be a single mom who has a very good job and um, and she's a contractor for a business and that business decides to not work with contractors and, and, and move a different direction and so she loses her job. And when you live paycheck to paycheck, any kind of uh, disruption in your weekly pay or your biweekly pay is going, if you don't have savings, which most folks do not, then that just starts to dig a hole and the hole becomes bigger. And then you have to start asking for help. And um, so those things compound very quickly. And that could happen really to a host of people, anyone who is really kind of entry-level job, entry-level, any kind of blip on your radar as far as employment goes can really, really affect uh, your stability. Um, And I think, you know, with the housing costs right now, people are paying this extravagant percentage of their income toward housing. And so if there's a if, if there's any kind of disruption in your income, the first big thing that's going to be unstable is your housing because that's generally people's biggest cost. Right. Yeah. And it's a bigger and bigger cost. It's a bigger relative and bigger cost. to everything right. else you have to. Absolutely. And take so care the, of. I guess another myth would be that um, homeless persons aren't working or they don't want to work. And that is absolutely not the case. Again, there is a, uh, a certain, uh, certain segment of the population that might be disabled um, or that might be unable to work. But I would say over 90% of the families that we work with at Homeless Families Foundation are working. Uh, they are the working poor. Uh, they might be underemployed. So they might be working at a service job, a Taco Bell, you know, at minimum wage. That's not enough to afford housing, Uh, but they might be working. They might even be working full-time if they're lucky, but often they're working at entry-level service jobs, uh, service industry jobs, and they're not getting full-time employment, and they're not getting benefits. And so So that is kind of... They're getting minimum wage, probably, or just slightly above, and and, not enough hours. Not enough hours, and it doesn't usually come with health care. And so you, you can see when someone starts what we would call a slide toward housing instability or slide toward homelessness. It's a combination of, again, those failed systems. They might have a blip in employment, and it might be because a child is sick and they miss too many days of work. So they're not full-time, and so they get replaced on the schedule. And so it just it's this compounding factor that those issues are just so interrelated. You know, um, usually someone doesn't just miss a paycheck and it's you know, and they fall into homelessness. It's usually this compounding childcare and education and family issues, and it's kind of a, a bundle of issues where they just don't have the support and the resources anymore to be able to maintain their own dwelling. I find it remarkable that someone could be having to endure homelessness and 
be able to hold down a job and go to work every morning. It's very difficult. That to me is just amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. And I, I think our families, um, that myth of, of the lazy homeless person who's just collecting a welfare check, you know, that awful one that we all know, it, in my experience, it just could not be further from the truth. Our folks work hard. It's hard to be poor. It's hard to navigate these systems. There's barriers and hoops and you have to have all your documents in line. And I find that most of the moms, again, most of our families are headed by single uh, single moms, some single dads, um, and definitely some two-parent. But um, they are organized. They're resilient. They, they're just resourceful. And, you know, um, with a lot of barriers, and a lot of hoops, and still managing most of them to keep their families intact. It's, it's a, quite a challenge, and um, uh, I think I'm I'm inspired more than I'm disappointed by some okay. of the families that we work with. I'd like to go back to something that you said about poverty, or or I'm sorry, homelessness and poverty, being hard work. Very hard work. Can you give us a sure. kind of mu- just mundane examples sure. of the doing of everyday life and particularly if you have children mm-hmm. but that anybody needs to do that's that's right. made difficult because right. you don't have economic resources. Right. So if you're fortunate enough as a family um, and, and I think in Columbus we do, a, we have a um, we're dedicated to making sure every family who is homeless has a place to stay at night. And we're not so fortunate on the single side. We're working on that. But um, Columbus um, and the city council, Franklin County commissioners, they, they've made this commitment. And so our shelters are swelling right now. And so it's typical if you're staying in shelter that you have expectations around going out and looking for employment and working and those things. And so you have to get up at a certain time. You have to, um, if you're in shelter, you have to be up. Uh, Other people are telling you when to eat, when to move, got to get your kids to school. And so there's arranging, they have great advocates who help arrange transportation so the kids can get to their home school or a different school. Um, Often moms will have to ride one to two buses to get to work because shelters, of course, are usually in the central city and most of the jobs are on the outskirts of the city at, you know, one of the suburban locations. Um, And so they might... They might ride one to two buses to get to work, one to two to get back, one to get their kids. And so it's just um, time as a resource is something that I think we all struggle with. We all wish we had enough more hours in the day, I would say, enough or more. Businesses that have your documents where you have to go for appointments, they're open till five. And so most. And so um, compound that with bus schedules and kids and then trying to work in between. You really have this shortened amount of time Um, and then if you're trying to work second or third shift to get around some of that then you run into fewer bus routes fewer child care options and so again you really are kind of shoved into this period of time where everything happens and it's just it's just a lot to navigate it's a lot for a parent of two who has resources and two cars right. <laughs> to it, manage it, to get everybody right. to the right spot. And, it, and so. it's hard enough to, to get laundry done for your kids Absolutely. for the next day mm-hmm. if you've got a washer and dryer in your own basement, mm-hmm. Absolutely. let alone 
you have to go to a laundromat and take the bus with your and laundry to make sure you have there. change and, yes. and something to do for your kids for two to three hours while you're there. And yeah, and then again, you have to get back to the shelter because they serve meals at a certain time. And so again, I think as service providers, we it's uh, it's not a, for a lack of us trying. I think we have schedules and rules and they have dinner at certain times because they just have to with that kind of many people in a congregate setting. But it really does force people into individuals and families who are not, I think I said before, they're not round pegs fitting in the round hole. Everyone's life is different, different moving parts. And when you try to force everybody into one system, um, it's just challenging. And Um, you're also catching people at different life stages. absolutely. Absolutely. And so you have some families that are headed by women who have have navigated this for a while, who have a lot of experience with school, and so they might navigate that piece a little better. Hopefully it's their first time homeless, so, but they, they've, they've rented before. They know what's expected in a lease. They understand how to cook, mm-hmm. how to do, how to do certain things that, you know, um, we're taught hopefully to do. Um, you have some households that are headed by younger Uh, moms or dads, that 18 to 24-year-old group, and you start to get into where this is, you know, they've never really had employment before. They've really never had uh, their own place before, and so you're you're basically dealing with someone developmentally who's at a completely different stage and asking them to navigate these complex systems. It's very, very challenging, Um, and we don't have... It, we don't have the ability to have as individualized care as I think any of us would wish. That would really be the best for people. How has homelessness changed over time? You say it's different today than it was 20 or 30 or 50 years ago? I think, I think it has changed. I think there's a few things. When institutions kind of went away and and um, and we closed state mental hospitals and things we had a lot of people who were used to living in in congregate care and facilities mm-hmm. that were now in mainstream and so I think that was kind of one of the first blips on the homeless screen where you would start to see people who are really housing unstable and I think it's grown um, since then I think even from when I began 20 or so years ago, the folks that we saw come in really were having kind of, they were, they maybe lost a job, they had a one big event, but really were able very quickly to get back kind of in line and get back. And what I have seen over the last few years with some of the big changes in job and family services protocol and different mainstream resources kind of policy changes is that you have a lot of people now who have exhausted all their resources before they could maybe stay with a friend or a family member and they would avoid the shelter completely. But the families we see now have more and more barriers. They've had multiple evictions. So this housing crisis has been growing. Uh, rents have been increasing. The shortage of affordable units has been decreasing. And so as you, you have this, as that problem is escalated, I think you've started to see people not be able to pull it together to, to make rent, to sustain their housing. And they've kind of used all their resources along the way. So 
is in their own personal resources, family, I, friends? A little bit of both. That, okay. A little bit of both. So there were changes so many years ago in work requirements for uh, in job and family services uh, or what we okay. would call welfare, but it's got a different name now, temporary for needy families. There are time restrictions and sanctions if you don't do work, certain work requirements. Well, again, work requirements when you're trying to look for a house and you're trying to raise kids. So a lot of folks found themselves sanctioned and that stopped money coming into the home. So some of that, that rise... And that change in policy, along with a shortage of affordable housing, the living wage not keeping pace, okay. all of those things together, I think, has caused this uptick in homelessness. And so many years ago here in Columbus, we saw this huge rise in family homelessness, and we are fortunate that we've started to see a little bit of a decrease. But what we see now is families who have been struggling with housing costs now for a a multiple number of years and along the way now they have multiple evictions because they couldn't maintain their housing so they they might have multiple evictions in the meantime their credit has gone okay. to pot now they mm -hmm. have credit issues if you throw in some any kind of criminal offense the ability to rehouse folks is much more difficult now because they've exhausted all their resources and you can kind of see the trail in their record as they come in okay. of trying it to maintain housing if each period of homelessness for them is, is episodic, with each episode, does it become increasingly difficult to find them housing again because Absolutely. there's a kind of snowballing effect? Absolutely. Um, there's a shitstorm, basically, yeah, yeah, that just gets bigger and it bigger. It gets bigger and bigger. Them. And you've heard Matthew Desmond wrote a, a wonderful book called Evicted, but he equates the eviction issue with African-American females equivalent to the incarceration of African-American males. Okay. And so it goes to your point of one eviction makes it harder to get rehoused. You have less options. Your housing quality goes down. And so you're forced into units that you're paying too much. It's poor quality. The landlords have worse quality. And so it is this snowballing effect. What we see with homeless families, and it might be a little different for singles, most families don't go from living in an apartment and getting evicted and come straight into the homeless system. There are stops along the way. So if, if you lose your housing, usually you go to friends and family. You usually, I would say generally, anywhere from six to nine months before you would show up in our system, generally. Every time you're evicted, that ability to go and to stay somewhere else and have respite before you have to enter into the shelter system, I think decreases a little bit because it's the second time you've been back or it's, you know. It's the, it's the you've worn out your welcome. Yeah, I mean, people are, um, they have compassion fatigue. They're exhausted with that, uh, a bit of resources okay. that they're trying to give the family. And so it isn't usually eviction straight to homelessness. There are stops along the way. The more times you do that, the more you tax those other persons, your, your support system, who very often are in very close to the same yeah. situation yeah. as you are, or, or exactly the same. And so you're staying with friends and family who might be renting and you can't stay there because you'll jeopardize their lease. Or, you know, you have kids and your kids do something and they eat all the food in the fridge and the person gets mad at you and puts you out. So it, it is, um, when you're living 
at the at the grace of other other people sometimes that goes real well and other times it 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 doesn't so the more often a family's in that situation they i think they have the less resources every time in addition to the credit and the evictions and the paper trail that follows them i'm really struck as you're talking by the images sort of the the folklore around poverty that we have in this culture that that in some ways it's a it's a little bipolar <laughs> if i could if i could borrow the metaphor on one hand we tend to view poverty definitely as a problem of somebody's individual failings of right. their moral character of their parenthood of as you were talking about even now the work requirements for TANF Mm -hmm. and I was thinking okay if you're middle class and you have children we still view a good mother is one who does not work outside the home but devotes herself entirely to her children but if you are poor and you want to devote yourself entirely to your children you are one of the lazy, no good people who are just there to suck the system as much as possible. Absolutely. And either way, you're a bad mom. Either way. I think that that could just be, I think uh, there's a lot of middle class women who who do work now and still are devoting themselves. So we have these super women, you know, it's very difficult to sustain but you're absolutely right, right. right. and even as you've been suggesting they are still typically in economic peril at right. times because how many of right. us are just a few paychecks away? away and you you see this sometime again I wouldn't say it's something that a lot of social service providers think of but but you're absolutely right when when you're trying to rehouse a family that's come into shelter, we really do, I think, as a society, think you should just sit there, you should be happy that you're getting help. And when there's a little bit of a pushback, there might be a little bit of a grumpy attitude, a little bit of, I don't like these options in front of me. I think it's people's tendency to sometimes be like, well, you should be grateful for uh-huh. our help. Uh-huh. And you you forget that, you know, they want a choice where they're going to live. They want a good neighborhood for their kids, for their schools. They want to be close to their jobs. But the minute they're homeless, we say, forget all that. You need to take exactly what we give you. There needs to be, I think, and I, I, I do think we do a pretty good job at HFF, and I, I think in the rest of the system, is, is providing dignity to our families and choice and options, just like we would have. Because, again, this is a temporary situation, and we're asking them to take something. Again, it's a stepping stone. We're not putting people, you know, out into really high-income neighborhoods. But but they should have a little bit of say in where they go. And we should expect that they have input. We should welcome it. A good parent should have some thoughts on where they will live and, and how many bedrooms they have and where their kids will go to school. But we expect them to kind of drop that when we... Uh, when we're helping them, and to pull themselves up by their bootstraps at the same time, <laughs> you know. So um, it's it's tough. And as a as a parent, I can't think of well, there's a few, but it's very difficult to have to come into a situation and admit if your children are old enough to understand that if they don't think you're on a camping trip or a vacation, right? Right. Because a lot of folks sell it as that, especially in the summer. To but, admit that, but that I was fun would wear off right, with the child it would. pretty quickly. And yeah. and 
And to have to admit that I, I'm your parent and I'm in charge, but I'm really not in charge because I've, I've lost our house. And so you see parents trying to parent in these environments have that real, that real, um, feeling of I've failed my family. It's, it's just awful. So as much dignity as we can provide them so that they are still in control, they are still the parent, is so important. It's an interesting dynamic, one I think we work on all the time. But How does one parent? How do you still be a parent it's and tough. be homeless? It, it's very tough. But because, again, there's rules and there's regulations when you go into congregate facilities, uh, the rules change outside your own home. And so yeah. you're at someone else's mercy and someone else's rules. And, it, and, and children see that. They, they, they absolutely understand see that. that. I do think one of the changes for the better that we've seen in the homeless system is instead of, um, at least in Columbus, instead of those big kind of open rooms mm -hmm. with multiple bunk beds and each family has a little space, in Columbus we have family rooms. And so families are able to go back into their shelter room with their own key card, a little bit like a hotel, and keep their family unit together. Isn't it and amazing and how much just the basic architecture, absolutely. the literal physical structure matters? Absolutely. That if you have your own space, even right. if it's a 10 by 15 foot whatever, and there I'm, I'm right. assuming I'm being generous, but... Mm -hmm. But then uh, they can that matters. They can go back in. Yeah. They can take care of, of baby's needs. They can help with homework. Uh -huh. They can do all those things that they would have done, hopefully, in their own home, just in their little space. You know, um, they'll still help with showers and bathing and those things. But, again, you are on someone else's time schedule. So, But, but I think that change... Um, when that happened, however many years ago, that was one for the better. It helped with that dignity. It helped keep the family unit together. Because at the end of the day, even though the parents are struggling, I think I think all the parents would say, this is so hard. I, I hate to see my kids see me fail at, at something. The kids at the end of the day, it's their parents. You know, they want to be with their parents. No matter if parents disappoint them, if they fail at something, that's their support system. That's who they want to be with. So at least we've had that recognition that we need to keep families together. They're in it together. And we respect that they're a family unit and that that parent is still the head of the household. And so, uh, again, I think we just, as service providers, we have to remember that. It's, it's hard when there's 75 families in your shelter and everyone's on this time you know, everyone's trying to get folks out and into their own homes quickly. But that's, this is their life. Those, it'll stay with those kids and that parent forever. And so as much dignity and individual attention uh, as you can give helps make that event less traumatic for them. And we'll take a short break now and be back. And when we come back, I want to talk some more about the consequences of homelessness on the children who have to experience it. Sure. Look forward to it. We'll be right back. What they tell us, how they compel us. I know what it's like to wonder what is true. In the speeches, the ignorant preachers. I know what it's like to be Great unknowns, I'm left to question what I see. 
love to hear from you. If you have feedback, suggestions, or ideas for future episodes, email us at voices at heartlandwoman.com. And we're back with Beth Fetzer Rice talking about homelessness. Uh, and Beth, I wanted to ask if you could speak for a moment about gender and homelessness, and specifically, what are both the effects and challenges of home and homelessness that are unique to women? That's a great question. So I think what we see in our family system Homelessness is experienced, I think, by women at a larger rate. I wouldn't have probably statistics to back that up, but uh, at least 70% of the families that we work with, um, and I would say in the entire system here in Columbus, are headed by single single females, single moms. Um, sometimes father is in the picture, sometimes not at all, sometimes sporadically, sometimes definitely a part of the family, but most of the times families are entering shelter with just just mom. Um, I think you'll also see that in the single women system, and I think a myth there is that most of those women are single without children, but the reality is a huge percentage, if not, I would say 90% would be my guess, of those women have children as well and have, um, they're either grown so they are moms or they have lost their children somewhere along the way and now they don't have children so they're not in the family system, they're in the single system. As in they've lost custody, they've lost custody. of their children? Or, or custody has been given to a gr- grandma or sister or someone else who can better care. So most of the time what we see in the family system is that homelessness is um, the main drivers are lack of income, not a living wage, and the cost of housing. So it's people are just too poor to make their rent. Can you speak to the difference between the women who lost custody of their children and the women who are in shelters with their children? Because Mm -hmm. I would imagine that a constant fear that they have is that they will lose custody of their children. And I think, again, homelessness is not a reason to lose custody of your children or we would have no one in shelter. So that is not alone a reason. A, a reason um, from to, for, your standpoint or from a court, from a judge? I think from mine, standpoint. but also from a children's services okay. standpoint. Okay. There's just, in the in the spectrum, again, you have very good parents that might be in shelter that are just poor and, and can't afford to, uh, rent, but they're still parenting, their children are safe, they're well taken care of, and they've reached out to get the resources that they need. I think th- when you lose custody of your children, um, that's the protective factors have come in. So either the children um, have been neglected to a point where they physically need to be um, removed for safety if they've been abused or if the mother is completely unable to care for them. And so I think what you'll see with single homeless women who have lost custody of their children or have voluntarily given it away is that there was some sort of addiction issue, some sort of possibly a mental illness or most of the time an addiction issue in order for the kids not to be placed in foster care, they've been given to another family member or they've, they've lost custody to two children's services. So there was definitely a factor compounding Correct. the problem of poverty. Correct. The main reason for homelessness is 
income versus housing. But when you right. start adding in all of these other issues, um, domestic violence, addiction, mental illness, those things compound when you're poor. And your slide to homelessness is usually quicker and it's more severe and it's harder to recover because now you've got different systems involved to help you get out of that piece. It sounds like more of a fall than a slide. I would say sometimes it's a cliff. Yes, absolutely. I think what we've seen, you know, when we had, I'm dating myself, but, you know, it was the crack epidemic, cocaine. Mm -hmm. You saw a lot of addiction, a lot of incarceration with that. Families didn't always, parents didn't always lose custody of their children with that. There was a, a piece where they were still able to sometimes maintain, sometimes still able to work. I think what we've seen with the opioid crisis is that that particular drug, the drugs that are involved now, it is more of a, of a, uh, a cliff. There is very little ability to be heroin addicted and to maintain work. So you're losing custody of kids quicker when you are addicted to that type of drug. It's just not that, it's not that same functioning level as you have with the other drugs. There's not as great of a recovery level with those drugs. Um, not as much treatment. We see families really, really torn apart by, by this kind of the opioid use. It's a very long haul for the person who's addicted, but the unraveling of their life happens much, what I would say, much quicker. And that's just from my personal kind of viewpoint of what we hear with the families and then the case reviews and that type of thing. I have to admit, I'm, I'm surprised to hear that. And I think one of the reasons is that we tend to associate opioid addiction with perhaps prescription medication that so, so we see it more as an addiction that crosses some class lines than something like methamphetamine. Right. And I think the public's reaction to the opioid epidemic has been more of a health crisis because it does cross some of those class and race lines mm -hmm. where the, for the crack epidemic and some of the legal ramifications of that use was incarceration. You're seeing the opioid epidemic be treated more as a health epidemic, not as much incarceration. Hopefully it's because we've learned our lesson and we don't lock people up for, for drug use. But I have a feeling it's probably some of that class. And um, it is. Um, some op opioids are what we consider a gateway drug. So what you'll see is a lot of people who've had bad accidents or surgeries who are on painkillers, and they'll start with that at legal prescription. Um, and then when they can't get any more of it, they'll go to uh, unusual lengths to get more of it. I think you've all seen the commercials where they're breaking their arm to get a pain, you know, prescription. But again, heroin and different types of forms, they're really cheap. And so again, if, um, if you have become addicted, however you've become addicted, you will continue that addiction through um, maybe transferring to another type of drug that's more readily accessible and cheaper. We're talking about drug addiction specifically in its relationship to homelessness and losing custody of your children. Does alcohol play a component here? I think alcohol always plays a component. I should clarify my question. Does alcohol, from the standpoint of evaluation of, of being a good parent and being capable of parenting, mm -hmm. 
Is that considered a, a factor? I would say that much less than I think it would have 20 to 30 years okay. ago. I think um, alcohol, because it's legal, is something that parents, um, you know, one to two drinks or regular or recreational alcohol use is not seen as an issue. It really is if if you've kind of, if they have deemed that you've stepped over a line with alcohol abuse. So it's not just recreational use, but it's dependence and it's interfering, uh, interfering with your ability to maintain the different pieces of your life. And I think over the last 10 to 15 years, social workers, service providers, we've shifted a little bit in our culture from this abstinence kind of model to more of a harm reduction model. And not everyone. There are still abstinence-based programming and different things. But that kind of speaks to that recognition that, you know, alcohol is legal. And there's no difference. There are people, there are businessmen in Dublin who are drinking every night and still going to work every day, and they're not losing their, their kids. There is the idea that once you cross over that line from recreational use to where the, the line is really is how you're functioning. If you're not able to get up and go to work, if you're not able to parent and take care of your kids, if your kids aren't getting to school, you know, they're looking at more the, um, the symptoms of it than the actual use, if that makes sense. Yes. And then maybe picking their battles a bit because... Just because you drink doesn't mean that you have to become homeless. If you're able to drink and it's within a certain kind of level that you're still able to maintain all the other pieces of your life as much as anybody else, then I think they kind of, I, I wouldn't, I can't speak for children's services, but I think a lot of social service providers are kind of looking at that as that's, that's what we want you to be able to do. We want you to be able to be just like everybody else, go to that picnic, have three beers, your family hasn't fallen apart from it, it's okay. Rather than this whole hardline abstinence, you have a drink, you're out of our program, you're out of housing. Um, now with illegal drugs, it's a little bit different. But again, I think we're looking for where, for, from my perspective, it's when does your alcohol or drug use start to impede the other areas of your life, one that you're not able to maintain housing, you're not able to keep your kids in school your children. And I think that is is more the line now than this yes or no you use. Is is that system forgiving lapses of parental judgment or parental ability? I think that is much more forgiving than it used to be, having been around for a bit. I do think there is, um, there has been a shift in kind of realizing that um, we can't have different expectations for parents who are poor than we do for the rest of the general parenting population. Because there's no, there's no handbook, not that I've known of, short of cat catastrophic behaviors, severe negligence, okay. abuse. Parents are kind of learning along the way. I do think there is much more support for parents now. I do believe that children's services and other enforcement type agencies, I mean, they want, there has been a shift where they are trying to keep families together, family unification, reunification. There's realization that p kids need to be with their families. That's where they should be. So re um, again, we've got this whole issue now of kids 
who've been in the system and they're aging out of foster care and there's just a million issues with that. So an emphasis, a switch to really family preservation. I do think there has been a, an increased emphasis on that. Um, so in that way, yes, more forgiving. For most of the time, we've had a so-called welfare system mm-hmm. following the Great Depression that women have been subjected to a different set of standards. And and I'm thinking here of even pertaining to the no man in the house rule mm-hmm. that meant as a woman, you couldn't have sex <laughs> mm-hmm. and still be considered to be a fit mother, that your children could be right. taken away from you right. if if right. you had sex with you a man. Had, you had somebody over, right? Yeah. And I think we still, there's definitely still those judgments. I think there is inequality all through, you know, when mothers aren't, again, I think just by looking at our numbers, there are more. There's so many more single moms than there are single dads, and so there is. If it was reversed, there would be this kind of what's going on? Why are women failing? So again, not that recognition that they're doing everything they can and they're by themselves and they're the ones holding the household together, but just kind of a, a little bit of a why have they failed? But I do think we've made strides with that. It's disproportionate. Again, if we look at Male and female is what I think it's 50-50 or 45, you know, 55. Highly disproportionate number of women leading families and highly disproportionate in the number of African-American um, female-led households and African-Americans in the shelter population in general. So I think um, I saw a recent study where it was about 65 to 70% of the general population is, is Caucasian, white Caucasian, and 27 to 30% is African-American, maybe even a little lower. But in the Columbus shelter system, and I think if you'd look at any other large city, you'd find similar results, anywhere from 65 to 75% of the shelter population is African-American. So it's almost exactly flipped, um, and 30% is white. So that speaks to lots of things housing discrimination, discrimination in employment, housing, education, again, homelessness as a end result of a lot of other issues along the way further upstream. And wage discrimination. Wage discrimination. Which which is above and and beyond employment. Absolutely. So you start to see, um, you see the end result in this, in this percentage. And we're all kind of thinking, what in the world, you know, and, and here in Columbus, we've just in the last two to three years really started to look at the intersection of racism and homelessness and what and and have started to form working groups to talk about how do we tackle that knowing that we are kind of receiving we're on the receiving end but what we see is our our job is to kind of speak the truth of what we see and start to push back on some of those mainstream resources and systems to say hey this is what we're seeing and this is a result of failed policy or you know whatever that is but we're starting to try to have that community conversation because again you know our shelter system we often equate ourselves to the emergency room you know we using the health analogy the the shelter system and the housing world that that I live in is um is the ER we're bandaging people up taking care of them making sure their immediate needs are meet helping them get back out into housing staying with them for a while 
and then passing them back off to mainstream resources and getting them back to primary care. When there's flaws in all the primary care systems, staying with the medical analogy, it's our job to kind of help point those things out so that there can be policy change at those levels to stop that. And to talk about specifically racism and the conversations that you all have begun, it strikes me in a very direct, let's lay it out on the table mm-hmm. and name it as it's racism in the system. It's uncomfortable. And culturally, this isn't what we do. And particularly, I think, in kind of social work system mm-hmm. where everybody wants to think they operate out of the best of intentions for mm-hmm. everyone, that dealing with complex and yeah Mm -hmm, uncomfortable mm -hmm. it's issues like racism and so I think as agencies one of the things that we are tasked to do is is to really work toward a better reflection of the the pot the clients that we're serving within our own agency and I think we all as nonprofits struggle with it from the board level, you know, um, down to the um, administrators to the direct service level. I think, I think you would see that most of the social service agency are headed. The boards are comprised of Caucasians, with maybe a few minority uh, f- folks sprinkled in. Administration is mostly um, Caucasian. A little better um, equity between male and female gender equality a little bit, but still usually male. I think the biggest diversity you'll see is in the direct service, the, mm-hmm. the people on the front line. I think I think we that's the easiest for us to handle, and I think most of us do pretty well there. But again, we need to start looking at, are we putting unusual requirements? Again, because if we're, if we're recognizing that there's inequality in education, and there's educational discrimination along the way, and then we're requiring certain staff positions to have certain degrees right. that we're perpetuating. And so not that you shouldn't have well-qualified people running organizations or on boards, that's not what we're saying, but we're, we're challenging ourselves to look at the barriers and hoops and requirements that we put up as agencies. At least I know as a director, that's what I'm trying to do. And it's a process. It's an education process for everyone. Um, And then once we kind of identify it, then we have to actually practice it. So it's a work in progress. But I think one that all social service agencies are probably kind of trying to wrestle with right now. We would hope so. Yeah. (laughs) Um, when it hits you in the face like that when that number those numbers you see those you think it's a it's astounding but there is research that suggests that people who are on the front lines of of dealing particularly with the impoverished Mm -hmm. you know we we used to summarily call them welfare workers Mm -hmm. in fact have worse attitudes sometimes and you know researchers have concluded it's because the wages often that you make in Mm -hmm. that kind of what tends to be more female dominated service providers you're also one or two paychecks away from a catastrophe absolutely and uh, in addition to um looking at unnecessary requirements or or maybe job attributes and skills that you want folks to have. You have to pay people a living wage. 
for agencies that are heavily reliant on government funding, individual donors, foundations, lot of, um, you know, it, people want to pay for rent assistance. They want to pay for a place to live, utilities. They very, very rarely want to pay for staff. And so you do, you've, you have, and this is one of those systems where we just continue to try, you know, we have caseworkers who have unrealistic caseloads. We pay mm-hmm. them very little. Our insurance isn't great. So again, as a, as an industry, as a profession, as a social work profession, I think we're working hard to increase the amount of pay, um, the recognition that our, I mean, the work that our frontline staff do is unbelievably hard. They have all sorts of issues related to secondary trauma. I mean, again, they they do such a hard job and it's sometimes where we put the least amount of resources. And I I know that I feel that's where we need to put the most most resources in, in giving them as many tools as possible to deal with the situations that they're dealing with, to give them as much training and support, and then to pay them well. Because really, I can sit behind, I sit behind my desk, I go to meetings, I do podcasts, but they're the ones out doing the hard work with the families, making the change and getting the outcomes to keep our funding and for us to continue to exist. So again, you have to invest in that and recognize that they are kind of the meat and potatoes of your, of your, of your work. But I think that's, that's a relatively new perspective. It really is. And, and I've been thinking as you're talking about burnout and absolutely I know it's it's a huge issue and I'm wondering is part of the answer to burnout being paid a decent wage I think it helps (laughs) (laughs) there's nothing quite like dealing with that trauma all day and going home and having trouble paying your bills I think it's the recognition that the work, and I think, again, this comes with some of the gender inequality, but again, social work, social yes. services, human ecology, whatever name you want to call it, has generally been seen as women's work. Mm-hmm. And so, fittingly, it's been paid less of a wage. And I know what we try to do, at least I try to do, is I've kind of gotten into supervisor roles and now as the director is to, to, first of all, I have men and women and I have a pretty good ratio. So I'm pretty happy about that. But to realize that this isn't just a skill somebody walks in off the street with. These are folks who have not only, uh, well, really, I look for folks who have the right attitude. Again, to me, it's the right lens. It's the right um, frame of mind that someone comes in with. And then, you know, They have to have skills, but I can teach paperwork. I can teach different ways that we do things at my agency. I want to make sure someone has has a strength-based attitude that sees strengths rather than deficits and operates from that perspective, that they see our families as resilient, um, that they don't bring judgment, or if they have their own issues, they own them and they recognize them. To me, that's more important in someone who's going to do this work because of the const- the incremental success that we have sometimes. You have to have somebody who really is believes your families can make the change. And then when they only half make it or they don't make it, is has the ability to say, 
this is what happened here. I'm going to do better the next time. I'm going to move on Mm -hmm. to the next family. Mm -hmm. Because that kind of negative, judgmental attitude can take root in a staff very, very quickly. And then gets Um, communicated. And spoil that to to the families. To the families. Absolutely. And so ultimately, in any business, you would see, you know, how you treat your customers is the most important. Unfortunately, we are a business. It's just a different type of business. And we need to treat our our clients and the people we serve better and I think I think we're doing a better job of that we have lots of you know lots of ways to go but I think we're doing a better job with that so hard work on the back end that I always say you know to our families that we serve nothing changes we're still approachable we're still in the trenches with them but behind the curtain you know (laughs) behind the curtain backstage we are administratively sound, we're paying the right wage, we're training. We have a professional staff that makes our agency run and keeps us having good staff, good people, and keeps us, again, good service, good outcomes. Again, it's, it all works together. But again, it should be no different. Uh, if Just because you're a grassroots organization doesn't mean that you're flying by the seat of your pants. You know. <laughs> so I think that's a mis- misperception sometimes. And on that note, we'll take a short break and be right back. What they tell us, how they compel us I know what it's like to wonder what is true In the speeches, the ignorant preaches I know what it's like to be If you like what you hear, please tell, well, everybody about us. For more information, links, and other great stuff, check out our website, www.heartlandwoman.com. And we're back. Beth, I want to ask you what may be a strange question, but I think is an important question if we're talking about homelessness which is, what is home? I think most people would, the first thing they would say is you think of your physical structure. And so we all know how important that physical stability is. I always refer to my best friend Maslow and his triangle, where um, shelter and safety and security, all those things that a home brings is first place I think you start. And so um, having a place where you eat together and you live together and you parent, the physical structure is home. But I I think if you want to really think past that physical structure, there are other different types of home. And home is um, that safety and security. It's, It's a place, a sense of belonging somewhere. It's, um, and I think you can have that at the personal level with your family. It's where you live with your siblings and your parents and it's where you celebrate birthdays and it's it's that comfort and the basis from which you feel safe. A step beyond your own personal home. So you've got your physical structure, you've got your sense of safety and confidence personally, but I also think you can think a little bit bigger and it's community. And so the one thing I think that homeless persons um, and everything else that they're robbed of when they're robbed 
robbed of dignity so often is that sense of belonging, belonging to the family, but also belonging to the community. You know, you don't have a neighborhood, you don't have a school, you don't have all those things that you get with that community, that sense of belonging. When people think of homelessness and we talk about it as a traumatic experience and how it increases risk factors for kids so much, I think we think of that physical thing. Uh, so much, but I think some of the trauma is around those the loss of those other things. It's the loss of that sense of confidence and the belonging and the trust that you had that your parents are going to take care of you forever and, ooh, this happened, and now I don't have a place that's my own. Um, I don't belong. I think those, to me, are some of the most traumatic things that happen to people when they become homeless. They lose that sense of belonging. If you ever speak to someone who has lived on the streets for a long period of time, um, it's like they've become invisible, you know, they, people don't talk to them. They avoid them. They avoid eye contact, eye contact. Um, I we just do walk down, past we them, do, right? we look past them. Um, and so I think we underestimate, how, underestimate how important that belonging is. So I make it a point to just say, hi, how are you? How's your day? Sometimes they keep me in a conversation and it's, you know, they tell me all their problems, but other times they'll say, they're shocked that I spoke to them, one. And then they'll say, I'm good, how are you? And I say, I'm really good today, thanks for asking. But again, it's that, just that, um, that common interaction, that, that kind of easy rapport that we have as we go about our day. I think that some homeless people would say they're missing that. And safety and security and a, and a, a physical place from which to begin all your work is, is really, I think, most important. But those other things are very important. And I think when you're talking about kids, we underestimate how important that is to them. I'm also thinking about the, you mentioned earlier about the tremendous factor for women of escaping domestic violence. Absolutely. And those things that you were talking about, a sense of security and safety and belonging, Mm -hmm. it sounds like they probably didn't have it. Where if if they're fleeing a domestic violence situation, sometimes the shelter is a more secure place. But absolutely. I mean, you can be housed and not have that safety. So again, it is more than just the physical structure. Uh Uh It's the trusting and the confidence in the people that are there with you in the home, but also in the community, you know. People aren't houseless, they're homeless. they're homeless. If I call the police, are they going to come? Yeah. Are they going to, is there a bus that comes to my street, you know, to take me to school? Is there's all those little things that that are normal, the the normal things that we take kind of for granted, um, you don't have, you know. And And you don't realize how much you need the mundane every day until you don't have it. Well, and then that goes back to what we talked about earlier and that how hard it is, you know, how hard it is to navigate when, how hard it is to get a job when you don't have an address to put down. How hard it is um, if you don't have a cell phone to have them get in touch with you. How hard it is to wash your clothes for interviews. You know, all of those things that come with having a base. Um, And I would think how hard it is to walk around with the stigma of the label homeless. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think with families, you you physically don't see it as much. You know, I think 
when we see the the people on the corners with the signs or you see them kind of with bags um, most of the time they're single people you don't uh, families uh, I think are worried if you have kids up and down the street that they'll be taken away but there is still a tremendous stigma um, and I think it's reinforced by when you go to school and when you try to get a job you have to continually repeat your story of why you don't have a base why you don't have a place an address um, and it just makes things the mundane very difficult and normal is kind of out the window we do our best to make it as normal as possible, but there's nothing normal about living in a congregate facility with 75 other families. And what a five-year-old wants is their dinosaur sheets. Absolutely. <laughs> and they want to be able to get up and go to the bathroom if they need yeah. to without being walked by somebody. And they, um, yeah, they want to be able to get up and get a drink of water or have their dog with them. Yes. You know, and um, so again, that... And sometimes if they have those things and it's not their home, they're still okay. But again, we, we, we don't put as much emphasis as we need to on what home is outside of that physical structure for kids, especially. It's that safety and security. One that even, you know, in my privileged life, I have to be reminded of with my, with my kids who, when something kind of goes wrong or we talk about a bad day at work, they say, is everything Okay. You're not going to yeah. lose your job, are you? Yeah. Again, there's a fear there. There's a real fear of something's going to upset that that stability. Um, we don't even think about it. We're like, oh no, we're just complaining. You know, right. <laughs> it was a rough day. <laughs> um, but for them, th that makes some kids really nervous because they've seen other people kind of go down that road. They've got friends who are struggling. They got friends who's divorced. So, um, kids are amazingly resilient. Uh, goodness knows, they're amazingly resilient, but they're they are fragile, and they really do see and understand way more than we think they do. I, <laughs> way more. As we've been talking, and I've been here with a pen and paper and just jotting down words, mm -hmm. and I realize looking at my, my list of words that a good number of them are emotions. And I want to give you each emotion I've written down and ask you to to talk about it okay. in terms of the work that you do, particularly talking about it as, as relates to women and children. Okay. The first word I wrote down was fear. Uh, yeah, I mean, f for the families who come in, who's really kind of their fate is out of their own hands, you know, and so the fear of the unknown about what's going to happen, about where they're going to go next, how quickly they're going to go. It's an overwhelming, uh, I think, emotion. And I think as, as staff, as workers, I don't think we recognize that as much because there is a tremendous amount of fear about what's coming next and, and the unknown about everything they've known has just been, it's an upheaval. And they're fearful, fearful that they won't be able to make it, fearful that they won't find a place, fearful that their kids will be taken away if they can't figure it out. I have to be honest here. I think the reason that I wrote that word down was as we began this conversation, you talked about the ways that most of us don't want to really talk about homelessness mm -hmm. and think about it because we're afraid. 
I wrote down fear, I think, reflecting my own... Your own thoughts. My own level of fear an absolute terror that I have because I'm on I'm on the list of not that far away. Absolutely. And what if a crisis occurs? Yeah. And I think the idea of losing my home, and I've always referred to it as the wolves at the door, and when the wolves break down the door... Right. It's a pretty deep pit, I think, that yeah. a lot of people go to. Again, you you hear, we've, we've talked a lot about homelessness, and we haven't, I've called it the slide, but you hear it in the phone calls and from the walk-ins that we get every day at the agency where people are on the edge, they're seeing it coming, they're terrified, and they're frantic almost. I need help. I'm behind on my rent. I'm three days behind. They are fearful that it's all going to fall apart, and we don't have a lot of answers for that. You know, um, there's not a lot of help, as we talked about, upstream sometimes. We try to connect them with places that can help to try to stabilize them, but it is, it is this fear of, oh my God, what's going to happen if, if I can't come up with the money to pay this rent? It's, the idea of homelessness is so, it should be so scary. Right. And I think what, I think that one of the things that makes me saddened the most is that for some of our families that are living in poverty, it has become, I won't say normalized, but it has become something that's just an inevitable rather than still that oh my gosh, absolute, doesn't happen very often, worst case scenario. You've got some families who have been in shelter three, four times. And so it gets a little less devastating every time you have to do it because once the bottom has fallen out, it's, it's fallen out. It's, is, it's tough. Is it that you just become numb? I think so. That you just, you stop It has a lot being to do with hope. You. Yeah, yeah, you do. I think you lose hope really quickly and you realize that I've been here before wasn't that bad but again we don't want people to ever get to get there I mean um, how do children develop a sense of security or even of self yeah in the face of hopelessness Mm -hmm. I think again kids are they're tremendously resilient um and I think it goes a couple different ways. I think some kids, again, depending on their age, some kids don't understand the complexity of it. Um, and, and depending on how well mom and other people handle the situation, if it's quick, they talk about it as a blip, the kids kind of, they get back to normal pretty quickly. I think they bounce back pretty quickly. But you see... You see kids who have been in poverty a long time that have been doing that shuffle from family to friends maybe seven months before they get to shelter. And they're, um, I mean, you see it, they're, they're behind in school. A lot of them are acting out. They're either acting out and they have behaviors that are getting them in trouble or they're completely closing off. And they're almost um, sometimes just vacant, you know. And so I think it can be all of, you know, those extremes. Because if you are in and out of a homeless situation, if you are housing unstable, even if it's relatives, you know. I mean, really well-intentioned people. If you're still sleeping on a mattress with your mom in someone's basement, you know that's not normal. So I think it's depending on the situation. But it, it really does... 
it, it causes distress and it and it's again school age children it's a whole other kind of spiral of self-esteem and confidence and not to mention getting the heightened grade level that homelessness can do especially when you're moving as much as some of our families unfortunately do yeah. it's really difficult to continually pick back up for the parents but also for the kids you earlier had mentioned maslow's hierarchy which is something i th- i think about a lot when mm-hmm. we talk about homelessness or hunger mm-hmm. or or just it general everyday poverty absolutely Maslow's point was that you can't get to the next stage without those fundamentals being addressed and taken care of. So the idea that you could achieve Mm self-esteem, that you could be, in his words, you know, ultimately self-actualized, is, you know, without those mm-hmm. basics right. and and for right. any of us but particularly for children. for children you know and I think again we've talked a lot about how kind of the homeless world and homeless services have changed and I think um, one of the ways that has changed for the better is that we have this realization again I think we suddenly embraced Maslow and we said housing needs to be the focus of everything we do and so when I started in this field we had shelter families were in shelter for 30 days, then they moved to transitional housing, and then they had two years to kind of get things together. And by the time the family was done, they could have been in the homeless system for two to three years. And what we realized is, regardless of the well-intentioned providers, you're still homeless for two to three years. Yeah. And you still have to find a home after. So we've um, there was a shift, I'm going to say, early 90s, where we started moving to a, a program intervention called Rapid Rehousing, where we, and, and Housing First as a philosophy, as a, um, where we recognize that housing should be put first before requirements for other services. Um, it should be the base from which we start all other programming. And so example would be is if I had a family in who needed work and they needed to see a counselor because they had a mental illness, and I would say, you need to do all these things and then we'll look for a job. You have to have income first and you need to get to the counselor. Inevitably, 100% of the time, the people would say, I need to find a place for my kids to sleep tonight. So even though they knew, and sometimes there's self-recognition that they needed to do these other things, but the only thing, time and a time, again, is that that's all they cared about. And so again, when you think of Maslow, you're like, of course this is a no-brainer, right? So we finally uh, we got smarter as providers, and we said, let's take that out of the equation. Let's move them, for those who can, now Sam, you know, and, and permanent supportive housing is a little different for people with severe mental illness or severe disability, but for those who um, are living in poverty and that financial means is kind of the main reason they're homeless, let's get them back into housing as quickly as possible. And then you start to build services and address the issues that got them there, but not before you provide that safe, stable place. Results are amazing, shockingly. When we talk about even mental illness and homelessness, I think how could one be homeless and not be depressed? <laughs> Again, they should be, or I think there's an issue. Yeah. I mean, there's a, yeah. such a thing as healthy situational right. depression, you right. know, and there's a process for grieving, and there's a process for 
it's where you're not able to rebound and eventually pull yourself out. That's the problem. But yeah, I mean, you should be down and depressed. And then very quickly, we should be talking about how we're going to get you back out of this mess. And so our goal, again, and because of the affordable housing crisis and the living wage crisis, we're a little bit longer, I think. I think I looked at it and we were at about a 39-day average to house someone. So if some family's in shelter, it takes us about 39 days to move them out into their own unit. And then they settle in, we get their house furnished, we help them with those things, we get their kids enrolled in school, everybody takes a deep breath, and we say, okay, what led you to here? Well, it's childcare. Well, it's employment. So again, you're working on some of those pieces at the same time, but never before housing. And the other thing is what we don't, again, going back to that kind of harm reduction discussion we had, we don't say you have to get mental health counseling in order for me to help you with housing. So it's not a kind of, you have to do this and it's a, we think as we sit down with you, that these are some of the things that contributed to your homelessness. Um, but it's not a mandate anymore. It's not mm -hmm. a, you absolutely have to do this. Um, so there's some consequences if you choose not to. But um, when people buy into the process, when they're part of the solution, when they recognize that it's important, they get better results. And so the idea of um, holding the housing carrot over their head kind of we've we've shifted our model and I think it's one that is much more dignified um, and it puts control back in their hands. Amongst my my list of words that sure. I wrote here was gratitude and next to it emotion management and as you've been talking I've been really struck by particularly women with children. So much of women's labor has to involve emotion and emotion management. And I think it's particularly severe for homeless women. As you've been saying, on one hand, you have to play the role of the grateful recipient yeah. in the face of somebody who's got a service that you need, yeah. and you don't have anything to give them but a face of gratitude or a face that says, you know, I'll go along to get along. I'll get along to go along. Mm -hmm. But they have to be, to maintain another kind of emotional facade around their children. It's okay. Everything is fine. Mommy's still in control. No, we're not scared. No, it's not. And I think how exhausting that must Absolutely. be at the end of the day, on top of everything else you have to deal well, with. It's exhausting for a housed woman, let yes, alone. Yes. Um, absolutely. And so you see some women do it very well. And you think, how, and so a, a good, skilled case manager will sit there and say, you know, keep the kids busy, keep them playing, and then say, how are you? What can we do for you? What, what would make your life easier? We have those conversations. But often what you see is women not able to hold it together. Um, again, they're getting the things done that they absolutely have to, right. but they're yelling at their kids sometimes. <sighs> or, and this can be damaging too, is that kids know way too much about the situation that they're in. So kids are forced to grow up and deal with these adult problems because they're in the room, they're hearing it. Mom doesn't have anyone else to confide to except the 11-year-old daughter. So 11-year-old daughter now knows how to navigate the entire homeless system. Which is knowledge an 11-year-old should, not, should have. not have. So again, I think 
what you see is our moms a lot of times having a depleted support system. Not a lot of folks um, that they feel they can confide in. And so sometimes kids, unfortunately, are, are in that role. Um, and depending on mom's functioning level, her, her skill level, her education level, um, there have been many times where kids have surpassed mom's functioning level. And sometimes kids are part of um, the decision-making process. And so that's not as... Not as doesn't happen as often, but you will see that as well. So that role shifting that that I think we've we tend to automatically recognize, typically in in alcoholic families yes. where the child yes. has to step in to be the adult because mm-hmm. there's there's a gap mm-hmm. there. There's no one else being. But the that adult. same gap exists in families who yeah. live in poverty. When mom has to work, who takes care of the little kids? Um, when mom's not home to cook, who's cooking? Who's making sure the little kids eat? So you see that when you've got just mom and maybe no other support system. There's maybe no other parent or um, no other person that they can rely on. A lot of those roles shift to the kids. And that's in homeless families and non-homeless right, families. Right. But, you know, as kids are inundated I mean, I think our kids are growing up so much quicker these days and they're dealing with adult themes and but you see that played out um, because homelessness is like this microcosm of everything else, right? And they um, they are hearing the issues and they're hearing the struggles and that um, sometimes the moms don't, it's not, you know, after the kids go to bed, you don't have that conversation. Everybody's in the room and they're having that conversation. And the perceptive kid picks all that up. Sure. And so they hear it. They hear if their mom's upset. They hear if their mom's handling it well. Um, so it's a, it's an awful lot to put on a mom's shoulders um, to be able to maintain, to hold it together, to still shield your children when you can shield them, and then handle all of that. It's, it's a tremendous burden. Um, and one, I don't think we give enough credit to the moms who are, are navigating it and that are successful on the back end. It truly is... Um, it's it's uh it's a miracle. Yeah. I mean really, I hate to say it that way, but they we don't make it easy and um and they are dealing with a lot and they're juggling a lot of hats and they are they have resilience and strengths that I don't think they even know they have sometimes and it's our job to find ways to point that out to them and help build them up. Which brings me to my third set of words. Pride and dignity. Absolutely. Uh, again, I, I can't think as a parent something worse than having to admit and to have my kids see me fail them. And so as much as we can treat our families with dignity, treat the parent as if they're still the parent, not um, not have judgment, not speak down to them. And it sounds very simple, but you would not believe how often we speak down and as if um, they don't understand or they're not intelligent enough to understand what we're talking about. I mean, it's, um, and you really have to look at your interactions from everything from your, what we would call intake procedures from the first time you meet them to the back end, um, is how do you instill dignity and respect just because they're homeless and in a tough spot and, and poor? Yeah more likely than not, doesn't mean that they're any less. And that's, that's a hard thing um, 
to do. Uh, we work on it, which we train on it, but it's 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 hard, and, and we have to work on it every day, and we have to make sure we're doing it. And I think control is such a part of that yeah. because the word has negative connotations to it to a great extent right, now right. but as a parent you've got to be in control and and ultimately every parent ends up saying because I said so or somehow communicating because I'm the parent because I'm the parent I'm the one making the decisions right. I'm in control here right. and we also recognize that children need to know mm-hmm. that somebody's in control on right. their behalf but Absolutely. they don't have to be the adult right. they get to be the kid right. and that's the sense of security and yeah. safety and um and again, but how do you do that in a system where otherwise you have absolutely none. no control yeah and and again you're you're working with some moms and families who have 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 amazing ability to do that and to still keep their kids you know in line and to you know it's seven you know seven o'clock we're all back to our room and bedtime's at nine because those are the curfews but that's just mom's curfew you know and they handle it and then you've got other um and i see it more in the young parents um who've never been shown how to do that Mm -hmm. where you really start to see some maybe um inequity in roles um where kids are more involved and more like a peer than a child um, or just uh, moms not being able to hold it together and kids kind of like just off the hook and so you have the whole gamut but I think the one thing I would say is that all the moms are trying I mean I would want people to know is that um, they don't you don't start being a parent wanting to fail right. or not care. They, they're trying they and they're trying the best their of their role. ability. They may not have been taught any differently or know any differently. And so, of course, we have all sorts of um, independent living skills and resources and, you know, and we're modeling and coaching. But, you know, not everybody has, is being taught that the, the right way to do things from infancy. So, you see a lot of different types of parenting styles, you know, because they just, they don't, they've never seen anything different. I think it's important for us to end this discussion with your take on, okay, we're talking about a horrible situation, but where's the hope here? And I'm assuming you're in the work because there is there hope. There is hope. And Absolutely. so how, how do we... If nothing else, is, as a culture, what are the things, I mean, I, I realize every day you look at four homeless individuals, okay, how can we make it better right. for you? One, one family at a time. As the director of a service agency, you're also looking at how do we do it better right. so that we can make it better. Right. Yeah. Culturally, do how do we, we make, make it better? better? Well, you're right. Um, as the director of an agency, I can assure, again, like we've talked about, that my staff have the resources and the tools that they need to work with really um, difficult situations and with people. I think as a society and as a culture, though, homeless is, is something that is absolutely solvable. We have all the resources that we need. It just takes coordination, um, and it takes determination and, and political will to get it done, the way uh, I look at it. Political will. To get it done. That's an issue. Um, and so, as, as I've said, most homelessness is, is 
simply, there's <laughs> nothing simple about it, but it is supply and demand. And it is making sure families have enough income to afford the housing that's available. We have an affordable housing crisis, so we need to develop more housing. <laughs> we need more units. We have one unit for every three person living in poverty who needs it. So one is just housing production and affordable housing production, bricks and sticks. The second thing I would say is um, rental subsidy. So until we get to a point where everyone is paid a living wage and that we are, people are, are able to not spend 70% of their income on housing, we need to provide uh, access to more rental subsidies. So whether that is through a voucher program like a Section 8 where people pay 30% of their income, whether it's a sliding fee scale, there's lots of different um, models and I think um, probably not a one-size-fits-all mm -hmm. as far as rental subsidy. But I think if the housing is not affordable, then we need to find some way to subsidize it to make it affordable in conjunction until we have the supply. I think as we talked about, eviction is one of the biggest issues facing us. It's, it's very easy to evict for lots of different reasons. Right now, landlords hold the upper hand. They have the supply that's desperately needed, so rents are going up, up, and up. They also have the ability, they hold this power of eviction that, again, once somebody gets one of those on their record, it's very difficult to get rehoused. It's a negative mark on your credit. It's it's like this Scarlet A, you know. So um, or Scarlet, Scarlet E, Scarlet E, I guess <laughs> I should say. And so some reform there. And and you've got advocates who talk about different ways to do that. But right now there are no requirements around mediation. So you do have um, you have some very good landlords who legitimately take people through the eviction process. And that's not the ones we're speaking of generally. We're speaking of the landlords who have a business of getting deposit and rent and evicting people and collecting that deposit and rent again in this churning and churning of, of preying on poor people so, with so, really bad units. So, so eviction becomes a way of making profit. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and substan sometimes substandard or very poor housing quality. So to me, that's kind of another area. Um, again, I don't want to make it more difficult because if you start putting a ton of restrictions on landlords, then they'll stop running to our folks. So again, how do we do that? How do we weed out the bad ones and keep the good ones? That's kind of where I think that discussion of eviction reform goes. And then I guess the other thing that I think you know, there will always be people who need assistance. There will always be need for shelter. But I think as social service providers, we need to believe that homelessness is um, a solvable issue with all these system issues kind of taking place, affordable housing and wage. We should be shooting to keep homelessness if it happens, what they say, rare, you know, rare, brief, and non-repeating. So if somebody gets into a, situation, a situation, they fall off the wagon, we get them right back on, we get them right back out, and we support them along the way so it doesn't happen again. And we do that by really using what I consider best practice programs. So rapid rehousing, as we talked about, is one that helps families and individuals move out of the shelter quickly so you don't have this extended stay, destabilizing stay in a congregate facility, get you back out into your home to have your base, 
and then you start addressing the issues. And our goal for somebody is just to ex keep extending the amount of time that they're in that housing. And they might have another blip where they're unstable at some point. What do we do? Get right back on the wagon. So rapid rehousing with the right supports, the right subsidies, the right services, I think is a real solution. Um, and the other is I think that we're slowly starting to move into um, is the prevention space. And we talked about homelessness being the end result of a lot of other failed systems. And so as, as us, our shelters and the homeless system being the ER, really strategic partnerships with other mainstream resources to look at how um, the work that we're doing intersects with them. Where along that line should we be intervening to kind of stop people from sliding into homelessness? And we're doing some targeted prevention with um, pregnant moms, pregnant or parenting moms. With the numbers, it's a problem that we can solve. You know, it's, it's a doable number. Making sure they get connection to medical care because, again, health goes out the window when you need to home sometimes. So, again, working with those other systems that touch a pregnant mom, wrapping services around her. So, again, if she stopping her from becoming homeless, but if she does, supporting her so they have healthy baby, healthy mom. So special populations, what we consider pregnant moms, transitional age youth, veterans, um, where we can do some real targeted prevention with other mainstream resources um, seems to be getting a lot of traction and we're seeing really good results. So again, we can't, um, we can't, the faucet is pretty big right now and we've got a ton of folks that we're trying to help, but if we can focus on some folks with, with very specific issues, I think we can make a big difference. So we're at Homeless Families Foundation, we're kind of, uh, the programming that we run is kind of in that prevention realm and then in rapid rehousing. Um, and then we provide educational programming for young kids as well because we understand that education is the equalizer, you know, so we start young. But um, again, our goal is to end homelessness one family at a time um, and help break that generational poverty. Beth Fetzer Rice, thank you oh, so much. Absolutely. Thank you for, for your having insight me. Insight and your wisdom, and also the work that you do that's yeah, setting thanks. a model for how this important work needs to be done across the country. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We'll leave you today with this poem entitled The Courage That My Mother Had by Edna St. Vincent Millay. The courage that my mother had went with her, and is with her still. Rock from New England quarried, now granite in a granite hill. The golden brooch my mother wore, she left behind for me to wear. I have no thing I treasure more, yet it is something I could spare. Oh, if instead she'd left to me the things she took into the grave, that courage like a rock which she has no more need of, and I have. Thanks for listening. Be well, and we'll see you next time.